0: The intense fascination that psychotic killers can exert on the public imagination has rarely been demonstrated more strikingly than in the summer of 1997, when during a few gripping weeks in July, a brash 27-year-old multi-murderer named Andrew Cunanan held the whole nation and indeed much of the world in thrall. From a brazen but relatively obscure FBI fugitive whose mugshot was familiar only to the followers of the Bureau's 10 Most Wanted list... Cunanan in one shockingly savage act became an overnight media obsession. His face suddenly featured on front pages and tabloid TV shows all across the country. His name seemed to be on everyone's lips, his snapshots on covers from Newsweek to the National Enquirer, while his shadowy presence was spotted by jittery witnesses in every contiguous state in the union. Even after he came to a predictable bad end, he continued to preoccupy the public partly because his motives remain so deeply enigmatic. His case thus raises tantalizing and significant questions, not only about the psychological sources of homicidal mania, but also about the seemingly irresistible appeal that certain kinds of sensational crimes have for us. What makes a human time bomb like Kunan and Tip? What was the nation so enthralled by him? And why do some criminals, even those who perpetrate acts of extreme, sadistic violence, Fail to grip the public's the public's interest, while others achieve celebrity, sometimes even legendary status. Because you see, I, like many other people, have a fascination with true crime, and maybe we prop these people up in a way that makes them feel that killing is a form of infamy, and maybe that's a discussion that we need to have another time. But we'll get back to Andrew Conanan for now. So if you don't know who Andrew Cunanan is, we're going to find out today. Is he a spree killer? Is he a serial killer? Do we even really know or hear about the other victims that he killed? Because the thing about Andrew Cunanan is, is that he always wanted to be famous and he always wanted to be a star. And I don't think he knew how he was going to accomplish that as things started to unravel. But one thing I can tell you about Andrew Cunanan is that he will live in infamy and we will remember him because he inextricably, in the blink of an eye, eradicated a life from this earth and tied himself to essentially a rising star if one could call murdering someone hitching yourself to their star. Because even though Andrew Cunanan landed on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list before the murder that made his made him infamous happened. The way that most of the public, and probably you and I, remember Andrew Kanani in 1997 as the person who killed Gianni Versace in Miami on his front steps. I remember... Where I was when I found out that Gianni Versace had died, I remember seeing Donatella splashed across the news headlines and the magazines as she now had to step up in her grief and take over the house of Versace. So I think that it is interesting that Andrew Cunanan, even in something so gruesome and horrible, was able to get the infamy that he desired. You are now listening to Murder v. Rope. I'm your host, V. glad you guys could join us this week and I apologize for not being back last week. Uh, things got a little hectic on the school and the work front, but I'm here with you now. So let's get down to business. Um, today we again are talking about Andrew Cunanan. So I guess we could start from the beginning. Andrew Cunanan was born August 31st, 1969. His full name is Andrew Philip Cunanan and he grew up in Rancho Bernardo, Bernardo, California, which is an upscale suburb of San Diego. Uh, Andrew had three older uh, brothers and sisters. He's the youngest of four children. And he possessed the kinds of qualities conductive to future success. I mean, he is a Virgo after all. Um, he's solid, highly literate intelligence. He um, had an outstanding and according to who you ask, some would say photographic memory. Uh, an easy charm about himself, and clean-cut good looks. According to his mother, Marianne, her son read the Bible by the time he was six, and Cunanan's father, a former Navy man turned stockbroker, described his son as an altar boy. One characteristic that Cunanan most assuredly did not possess, however, was the virtue implied by his father's first name, Modesto. Uh, from his days at the elite bishop's prep school in uh Lajola, he behaved in a style that seemed in part a healthy, even admirable display of gay pride and partly a frantic bid for attention and notoriety. One instance of this craving for attention uh, is when kunanen posed in one yearbook photo like a Calvin Klein model with a white shirt unbuttoned to display his abs or the time he arrived at a school dance in a red patent leather jumpsuit Who was provided by his older male date? Andrew seemed determined to live up to the title conferred on him by his classmates, most likely to not be forgotten. For a young man so hungry for distinction, it must have come as a devastating blow when his father, after reportedly being accused of scamming money from his clients, fled to Manila in 1988. And this took a toll on the family and essentially plunged them into poverty. Cunanan, who at this point was like 19 and a freshman at the University of California at San Diego, dropped out of school to join his father uh, in Manila, but was soon back in the States. Apparently he was appalled by the squalor in which his father was living in Manila. I think that Andrew grew up in a life that was comfortable. They had money. And then when he was in some of his most formidable years, the rug was ripped out from under them. The the life that he had enjoyed for so long, the notoriety that he had, the status that he had among his peers was all gone, even though he was no longer in high school. He wasn't able to keep going to school. I think in his mind, he expected to go to Manila and live this lavish life with his father if he really did extort these people. And when he got there and realized that his dad was living in relative poverty, much like they his family was in the States, he immediately went home. By the early 90s, like after this had happened, Andrew had become quite conspicuous and even flashy figure on the San Francisco gay scene. He would assume a variety of guises, a variety of different aliases. Andrew Da Silva, a Hollywood hotshot with a Riviera mansion. Sometimes he was Lieutenant Commander Cummings, a naval officer and a graduate of Yale. He dined at the poshest restaurants. He dressed impeccably in blazers and ascots and puffed cigar cigars and sipped only the finest champagne. He was, by all accounts, an extremely good guy and extremely good company. Uh, He was a wonderful conversationalist, self-possessed, vivacious, and well-informed, but even those who enjoyed socializing with Andrew often perceived his behavior and his insistence on, say, picking up the tab at every trendy eater he patronized, for example, as a symptom of his lust for attention, a desperate need to show off, and to prove that he was someone of stature. In truth, far from being a person of any importance whatsoever, the unemployed Kunan was entirely dependent on the charity of others who really did wield all the power in his life. Though his mother would later bitterly describe him as, quote, a high-class male prostitute, Kunan was actually more of a male mistress or gigolo. He kept a companion of succession of older gay men who would lavish clothes and cars and money and gifts on him. What made Cunanan so appealing wasn't his appearance, as various acquaintances would attest on the conventional 10 scale of physical attractiveness. Cunanan was rated a 5 by most of them. So much of his personality, intelligence, and social skills is what made him so appealing to these men, and also reportedly his taste for kinky sex. He apparently riveting combination of preppy polish and s and by 1996, however, something no one knows or may ever know exactly what caused Cunanan's glitzy world to come apart. Some former acquaintances have hinted that maybe the problem involved drugs. Others point to a crisis in her relationship with his last benefactor, an elderly arts patron who abruptly dumped him. Whatever the case, one thing is certain. This hedonistic, status-crazy Cunanan went more or less overnight from a life of extreme comfort and glamour, driving a brand new infinity, living luxuriously in his gentleman friend's oceanfront home, spending his $2,500 month a month allowance on expensive clothes, fancy food, cigars, and champagne to a sordid, desperate existence. Always obsessive about his appearance, Andrew began to let himself go. He gave up jogging. He began to put on weight. He showed up at his old haunts looking despondent and disheveled. He moaned about his loneliness and complained to bartenders that he couldn't even get a date. There had only been one quote-unquote perfect relationship in his life, he told a friend, a handsome Minneapolis architect named David Madsen. But Madsen had been trying to distance himself from Cunanan, reportedly because Cunanan, to make ends meet after being ditched by his sugar daddy, had begun peddling drugs and, according to rumor and other interviews, consuming them in increasing quantities. By mid-April, Kunani had told his acquaintances that he was moving to San Francisco. At his farewell party at a chic San Diego restaurant, he dined on beef tenderloin, ostrich, and trout. Shortly thereafter, having persuaded his credit card company to allow one more purchase on his overextended card, he bought a one-way, first-class airline ticket, but not to San Francisco. He was on his way to Minneapolis to, quote, settle some business. As he confided to a friend typically on this show this is the time that i like to take to talk about psychology and a few different things to kind of give background to what we're talking about and in andrew cunanan's case it's not much different what the discussion is a lot of times with andrew cunanan is is he a spree killer or is he a serial killer and like most regular people what's the difference among criminologists and other experts, it became a hotly debated issue. On one side stood those like John Douglas, who is a former FBI agent and bestselling author, and reputed inspiration for the Jack Crawford killer um, in I'm sorry Jack Crawford character in Thomas Harris's Silence of the Lambs. He argues that Conan absolutely fit the classic profile of a sexually predatory killer. On the other side were people like Douglas's former colleague Robert Ressler, the man who coined the term serial killer, who insisted that the people who are calling Andrew Cunanan a serial killer are grossly misinformed. The profile that Cunanan fit, according to Wrestler, was that of a classic spree killer. Now, in my opinion, I tend to agree more closely with Ressler. The term serial killer was coined to describe lifelong sexual psychopaths like Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy, your Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. To all external appearances, such men led perfectly normal, even crushingly dull lives while simultaneously conducting secret careers of unimaginable violence and sadism. They begin to demonstrate these twisted proclivities at an early age by torturing small animals or practicing juvenile pyromania. And as they grew older, they begin to embark on their adult crimes and they tend to be obsessed with a particular type of victim. For example, as in the case of David, the son of Sam Berkowitz, young women with long brown hair parted in the middle to commit their atrocities in highly repetitive ritualistic ways and as a general rule, they do their best to remain anonymous. They don't want to be stopped because they get such an intense, perverted satisfaction from what they're doing. The public knows that a serial killer is at large when the dismembered corpses start piling up, but they don't know who the killer is, and that leads the media to come up with catchy nicknames like the Night Stalker or the Hillside Stranglers or Zodiac Killer. With one exception, the sadistic Like nature of the Miglin murder, almost nothing about Cunanan's behavior fits this profile. Until the slaying of Jeff Trail, who we will talk about here shortly, Andrew Cunanan's savagery makes it seem like it's a classic crime of passion, not an act of sadistic ritualistic lust murder. Cunanan had rarely displayed any particularly violent tendencies, and apart from their common gender, his victims different in every single way, and his mode of dispatching them did as well. Some of the murders, Reese's, for example, and probably Micklin's, which again, we'll get to here shortly, were purely opportunistic and perpetrated probably because Andrew Cunanan needed transportation and money. They were crimes of essentially opportunity and far from trying or even wanting to remain anonymous, Cunanan was known to the police and the public from the very start, which I would argue is exactly what he wanted. Indeed, he left a trail of clues that a blind man could follow, but there certainly has never been a serial killer in history whose face has been on the nightly news while he was still at large. So, in short, Andrew Kanan falls into the category of a reckless, rampaging spree killer who's sent over the edge by some extreme personal crisis and goes off on a wildly destructive, often far-ranging reign of terror that leaves A variety of victims in its wake some of them were deliberate targets against whom the killer has some kind of grudge others are who's just unfortunate enough to be in the wrong place at the wrong time in the days following versace's murder deciding what category of criminal psychopathy oh goodness i can't talk today (laughs) cunanan conformed to was more than just an academic exercise or way to fill up time on tv talk shows there are important psychological differences between the serial sex murderer and the spree killer, whose emotional state, I will argue, is much closer to that of a mass murderer. Identifying Cunanan as a spree killer made it possible to predict, if not his next move, then at least his final one. For the essential fact about a spree murder is that it is ultimately a form of suicide. It is doubtful that we will ever know the precise details of the terrible crimes that transpired between April 27th and May 1st of 1997. Only three people were involved, and none of them is alive to tell the tale. But we do know this. On the night Cunanan arrived in Minneapolis and not San Francisco, David Madsen took him out to dinner and introduced him to some friends. Some of these friends were dazzled by Cunanan's charm. Others considered him a pompous, name-dropping egomaniac, and they were right. Two nights later, on April 27th, Cunanan invited a 28-year-old friend named Jeffrey Trail over to Madsen's Loft Department in a trendy warehouse. There have been conflicting accounts of Trail's relationship with Cunanan. Some have described Jeffrey Trail a former San Diego Navy officer who had moved to Minnesota in November of 1996 to take a job with a propane gas company as a quote unquote straight arrow who played the part of Big Brother in Kunanin's life. Others have suggested that the two men were one time lovers and that Trell had subsequently become sexually involved with David Madsen through knowing him via Andrew Kunanin. Depending on which of these situations is true, the events that followed may well have been precipitated by one of two causes. According to one theory, Trail had antagonized the increasingly unstable Kunanan by expressing his intense disapproval of his drug use. This led to a violent falling out between the two men. The alternate theory holds that Kunanan was sent into a jealous frenzy by Jeffrey Trail's affair with the love of his life, David Madsen. Whatever the case, we do know that just before 10 p.m. on April 27th, some neighbors of Madsen heard violent shouting coming from his place, followed by several loud thuds. Two days later, people found Jeff, police found Jeff Trail's body rolled up in a carpet in Madsen's apartment. He had been bludgeoned to death with over two dozen savage hammer blows to the face and head. Two days after this grizzly discovery, on Thursday, May 1st, Kunanan drove with Dave Madsen to a lake about 50 miles north of Minneapolis, and there, using, a drift, using Jeff Trail's handgun, he pumped several 40 caliber golden saver bullets into the head of a man that he once described as the love of his life. By the time fishermen stumbled upon David Madsen's corpse, Andrew Cunanan was long gone, having fled the southeast in the victim's red jeep. He then turned up in Chicago, where he somehow gained entrance to the home of a 72-year-old real estate mogul named Lee Miglin. There was no evidence that Cunanan had ever met Lee Miglin, let alone had a personal relationship with the older man, though he may have known Miglin by name. What Cunanan needed from the millionaire developer was cash, a change of clothes, and a new getaway car. For reasons unknown, Beyond the rampaging homicidal frenzy that now had Cunanan in its grip, he subjected Miglin to a horrific form of torture. He wrapped the victim's head in duct tape with a breathing space at the nose, then stabbed him repeatedly with pruning shears before cutting open his throat with a gardening saw. He then stole Miglin's green 1994 Lexus, And then he next killed a 45-year-old cemetery caretaker named William Reese in Pennsville, New Jersey, shooting the victim in the head with the same 40 caliber pistol that he had used to slay Madsen, and then took off in Reese's red 1995 Chevy pickup. The date was now Friday, May 9th. In less than two weeks, the one-time party boy had brutally murdered four men in a cross-country odyssey of death. With the killing of Reese, Cunanan earned himself a spot on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. News reports about the darkly handsome Californian who might be the country's latest serial killer appeared from coast to coast, though rarely as the lead story. For instance, the May 14th edition of the New York Times relegated it to page 12. Cunanan, who had displayed a lifelong craving for attention that bordered on pathological, now had his mugshot posted all over the country and was featured four times on the TV show America's Most Wanted. Still, he hadn't made it to the heights or depths occupied by true celebrity psychos of the modern era, your Bundys, your Berkowitz, your Dahmers, your DeSalvo's. That notorious accomplishment still lay two months in the future. In the meantime, Kunana made his way southward, stopping briefly in New York City, stealing a license plate in South Carolina, and then arriving at his ultimate destination, Miami Beach, where he checked into a down-at-the-hills hotel called the Normandy Plaza on May 12th. For two months, Kunana left his room mainly at night to hit the glitzy gay clubs of South Beach. During the days, he holed up in his rooms, assisting largely on takeout pizza and subs, and willing away his time with TV, fashion magazines, and S&M pornography. In early June, he moved his red pickup truck to the South Beach parking garage, just two blocks away from the palatial residence known as Casa Casarina, owned by the celebrated fashion designer Gianni Versace. During a stopover on his way to Cuba in 1991, Versace had fallen in love with South Beach, a 15-block stretch of Art Deco hotels and sidewalk cafes facing the oceanfront. Not long after, he purchased a pair of run-down ocean-drive buildings and spent $35 million to renovate them into his spectacular residence. The presence of the ultra-glamorous designer had a galvanizing effect on the seedy neighborhood, instantly transforming it into a chic, trendy enclave. Though Versace owned spectacularly homes in other locales, a magnificent Side townhouse in Manhattan, a 17th-century palazzo in Milan, a 17-room villa on Lake Como. The Ocean Drive mansion occupied a special place in his heart, partly and ironically because he felt so safe and free in the neighborhood. He dismissed his bodyguards, unplugged the mansion's security system, and moved around as casually as any other mere unremarkable mortal. Around 8:30 a.m. on Tuesday, July 14th, Versace, who was following his usual morning routine, left Casa Costa Arena and strolled a few blocks away to the news cafe where he purchased coffee and a handful of magazines. A few minutes later, he was back home. As he was opening the ornate wrought iron gates to his Mediterranean-style mansion, a young man in a white shirt, gray shorts, and a black backpack strode up and shot the 50-year-old Versace twice in the head with a 40 caliber pistol. As as Versace collapsed onto the stone steps of his palazzo, his companion, Antonio D'Amico, rushed outside and pursued the assassin, who suddenly swung around, aimed his gun at D'Amico, and waved him away without firing. The killer then dashed into a nearby parking garage. It was there the police investigators found the red Chevy pickup that had been stolen from the slain New Jersey cemetery worker, William Reese. Inside the truck were the bloody clothes worn by Versace's killer and a U.S. passport in the name of Andrew Philip Cunanan. The news of Versace's assassination sets shockwaves around the world, but the shock turned into something like mass hysteria when authorities revealed that the prime suspect was the same gay serial killer already sought in four other murders across the U.S. While Versace's family... Fans and seemingly limitless circle of superstar friends mourned his death and tourists by the busload arrived at Casa Casa Arena to snap souvenir photos of bloodstained steps where he'd fallen. Andrew Cunanan became the most frenetically publicized psycho killer since Jeffrey Dahmer. His face became a front page fixture on newspapers throughout the country and was blazoned on covers of magazines from Newsweek to People. TV stations and radio talk shows devoted countless hours to the story. Rumors about the reportedly cunning, brazen Jekyll Hyde killer abounded. He was taunting the police, playing a cat and mouse game with the authorities. He had purchased female clothing so he could disguise himself in drag. He was taking revenge on people he suspected had given him AIDS. Meanwhile, a mammoth manhunt, one of the largest in Florida, if not U.S. history, was launched. But Cunanan remained maddeningly elusive. In the popular imagination, he was quickly transformed into a figure of almost mythic proportions. A shadowy, demonically cunning, cross-dressing serial killer whose ability to outsmart the police seemed nothing short of supernatural. Though the public quickly demonized Kunanin, endowing him with these powers of both omnipotence and omnipresence, countless Kunanin sightings... Poured in from every state except for Alaska and Hawaii. His ability to elude capture had more to do with police blunders and bad luck than with any particular cunning of his own. On the evening of Friday, July 11th, for example, four days before the Versace killing, a cashier at a Miami sandwich shop recognized Kunanan, whose face it he had seen on America's Most Wanted. Before handing Kunanan his tuna sub, the cashier excused himself for a moment and hurried off to dial 911. While he was talking to the police operator, however, another cashier, who did not recognize Kunanin and thought he was simply a customer waiting for his order, handed him his sandwich. Kunanin strolled out and vanished minutes before the cop showed up. Just five days later, well, sorry, earlier, Kunanin, who was evidently strapped for cash, pawned a gold coin that he had stolen from Lee Miglin. To complete the transaction, he was required not only to fill out an official form on which he wrote his actual name and the address of the Normandy Normandy Hotel, but he was also required to leave a thumbprint, which he did without hesitation. This is not the behavior of a diabolically cunning killer bent on eluding capture, which again lends itself to the theory that he's a spree killer and not a serial killer. The diagnosis of Cunanan as a spree killer whose rampage was likely to climax with his own death, either by his own hand or shootout in authorities, which we would refer to as suicide by cop, was confirmed on Wednesday, July 25th. On that afternoon, Fernando Carrera, the 71-year-old caretaker of a double-decker houseboat docked in a marina only 40 blocks away from the site of Versace's murder, entered the vessel and found evidence of an intruder. As he hurried outside to call the police, Carrera heard a single shot. Within minutes, police had sealed off the area and heavily armed, specially trained forces surrounded the the houseboat. After nearly five tense hours of watching and waiting, they finally fired tear gas canisters into the house and shouted, come out, come out. But the boat remained deadly silent as it had for the past five hours. A few minutes later, at around 9 p.m., SWAT team members entered the boat. There sprawled face up on a bed, they found Andrew Cunanan dressed in only boxer shorts. He had shot himself in the mouth with the same .40 caliber handgun that he had used to commit some of his murders, and it lay on his stomach. Far from being a master of criminal cunning, moving without impunity while the world staged a fruitless manhunt, Kunanen had apparently been holding up in the house in two houseboats for more than a week not even daring to venture outside for food in the end knowing there was no escape he took the route typically followed by spree killers self-destruction while his almost preordained suicide Kunanen left a host of lingering mysteries which may never be answered in any definitive way still he also left enough clues to offer an informed guess about his motives an essential fact about Spree Killer is that they are deeply embittered men full of barely suppressed rage and resentment whose lives suddenly fall apart. Sometimes they are jilted by a leather. Other times they are fired from a job. Whatever the crisis that sends them plummeting over the edge, they are people for whom life has become an endurable nightmare. Death offers the only escape and they are determined to go out with a bang. But before they do, they intend to settle old scores and take other people with them to wreak vengeance on the world by inflicting some of its horrors on others. It's easy to see how Andrew Cunanan could have reached the point where his glitzy but excruciatingly empty existence finally turned unbearable. Cunanan, a person of much promise in his youth, his relationships appeared to be purely superficial and sexually exploitative, and his primary source of income was money from much older, richer men who were willing to dole out for his affable companionship and kinky favors. His desperate need to show the world that he was someone was undoubtedly a way of compensating for the opposite realization, that he was nothing more than a costly plaything, a man without any real power or status. When Cunanan was dumped by his final benefactor, the desperate nothingness of his life, no career, no love, no accomplishments, must have brought him home with the crushing force. At 27, he wasn't getting any younger and was even beginning to lose some of the appeal that his high-flying lifestyle ended on, depended on. In short, Cunanan appeared to receive the end of his tether when it finally snapped. When in a frenzy of jealousy or possibly drug-fueled rage, he lost control and murdered Jeff Trail, he knew that his life was effectively over and he ran rampant, taking some lives for revenge and others simply out of convenience. In the context of Cunanan's pathology, him targeting Versace makes perfect sense. Though published reports indicate that the two men had encountered each other once at a post-opera party in San Francisco, it seems unlikely that they had any kind of relationship. Cunanan's rage against Versace undoubtedly stemmed from symbolic and not personal motives. Versace would have embodied everything that Andrew Cunanan desperately coveted and knew he would never attain glamour, and worldwide celebrity. It is also possible that 50-year-old Versace represented in Kunanan's unconscious the rich, older gay man who had used him all of his life. In his unreleased rage and insane resentment, Kunanan would get his revenge on the world, but also prove once and for all that he was someone special, a person to be reckoned with, a man with ultimate power, the power of life and death over another he would finally have his picture on the covers of national magazines and fulfill the destiny his prep school classmates had foreseen as the fellow student most likely not to be forgotten. But not every psycho killer becomes the object of national obsession. The ones who do often achieve that status because they reflect certain characteristics of their time. In our own age of celebrity obsession... Trendy transvestitism and bisexual chic Kunanin, the gender bending celebrity stalking killer, served as a deeply compelling reflection of certain currents running through our country and a dark mirror of our cultural soul. So this one is a little different because we don't know a lot about Andrew Kunanin's victims. Because it seems as if they weren't picked for any particular reason other than just being convenient. And because everyone is dead, including Andrew Cunanan, it's really hard to do much besides guess what it is that motivated him. So my hope is that this podcast gave a little insight into what people believe Andrew Cunanan was like and what it was that he was after. But I think it also goes to show that even in this line of podcasting and true crime and how it's become big business, that very often victims get lost. We don't talk as much about victims. Their lives aren't publicized as much. And we're left with serial killers and spree killers and murderers who have all of this infamy for what they've taken away and broken in other people's lives. And so I hope that even me and others who do this type of podcast will take a step back occasionally and make sure that we are doing our best to honor victims and that we are doing our best to not glorify killers. Because if anything, it is about learning more about the human psyche than it is about glorifying death and devastation that these people have brought. And with that, that is the story of Andrew Cunanan, the spree killer that ended with his own suicide and the very sad murder of Gianni Versace. But I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I don't think I have any announcements for you today. Um, Maybe a couple. If you would like to join tomorrow uh, at... I believe it is doo, 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 seven my time. So seven central time. You can join us um, on the other podcast that I do with Chris and Penrose. That is called uh, uh, called All Docked Up. We live, we have a live stream tomorrow. We will be covering the documentary. Out of Thin Air, which I thought was a very interesting watch. Um, It's a fascinating case study, and it's also about true crime this week. We try to mix it up over there, but as you know, true crime is my bread and butter. And this one uh, was a pretty good one. So you are welcome to join us. If you follow us on Twitter, uh, the link will be there for you to click on when the show starts so that you can join us. We would love to have you uh, and have a great discussion about that documentary that we watched. Um, what else is there? This show, uh, (laughs) I'm also part of another show that I do with Quentin, uh, Q, uh, Nat is chopping it up with Q. We are coming back. So we'll have episodes out this week. Um, probably about the time that this one drops on Tuesday and you can check us out as well. Uh, I think I tweeted out that if you would like to be a guest on, That show or this show or really any of the shows, reach out to me, leave a message, a DM, and I am happy to get back with you. We would love to have you on the show. I am super excited because I should be having a guest shortly. I won't disclose who the guest is, but it should be a really, 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 really good time. So I'm super looking forward to that. I have not picked my podcast pick of the week, um, but I will put that in the show notes so that you guys can check it out when I figure out who that is. I've been listening to so many things that I want to just highlight them all, so I have to pick one. Maybe I'll pick three. I'm not entirely sure, guys, but all of that will be in the show notes. Please go check out these shows that I'm highlighting. They are amazing podcasts. I'd like to listen to a little bit of everything, not just true crime, because if you're like me, you need a little palate cleanser after all of the death and destruction that we talk about here. So it's nice to listen to other podcasts that are about super cool things that are hosted by super cool people. And if you like my show, you're going to love theirs because they're a lot more professional and polished over there, I'm sure. I'm sure the sound quality is a lot better too. But- With all that being said, I thank you guys for tuning in. I thank you for listening. If you could, please like, subscribe, share. Uh, Give me a five-star rating on iTunes if you'd like. I love to hear your comments. So even if you hated the show, I want to hear how I can make it better. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can tweet me personally. It's at VJ underscore Burton. B-U-R-T-O-N, or you can tweet the show that is at Murder v Pod, and you can find us at the same ats on Instagram. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. You can catch this show, and you can always listen to the show or the backlog of the shows any place that you find dope podcasts. Again, thank you for listening. This has been Murder V Wrote, and I'm your host, V.